If you have your Bibles, why don't you take them? And on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke together, and we pick back up this morning where we left off in Luke chapter 18. And if you do need a Bible while we're turning to Luke 18, just hold your hand up. Their guys are coming up the aisles, and we have some Bibles. We'd be happy to hand one over to you so you can follow along as we study God's Word this morning. Just keep your hand up, and they'll get a Bible over to you. Luke 18, and last week we left off in verse 8, which would have us picking up this morning in Luke 18, verse 9, and we're going to go from verse 9 down through verse 17. And if you are turned there, would you stand together with me out of reverence for the Word of God as I read our scripture text for Bible study? Luke 18, beginning In the ninth verse, regarding Jesus, it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it and father we humbly ask for your help this morning as we continue in this meeting of worship lord we want to open your word with that attitude believing that this is just as much an offering of worship as we open up the word of god believing that it's inspired by your spirit and that lord you want to use it to speak things into our lives personally So, Lord, we offer ourselves and we pray that even as we stand here, Lord, like attentive soldiers, that we could receive, as it were, our, uh, Lord, our orders from you and that you would speak to us about things in our lives that we need to hear. You know where we're at and we pray that you'd meet us and that you would bless your word and that you'd minister to each and every one of us in a special and a personal way. We ask for your Holy Spirit now to teach us and to give us understanding and allow us to be able to hear what you want to say to this part of your church that's assembled. Bless this time, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think one of the most important things that we must all learn to do in our lives is to properly approach God. And we spend a lot of time in our culture learning how to do lots of different things. We spend a lot of time teaching others, teaching our children how to do a lot of different things. And I think one of the most essential things 
that we all need to learn in our lives is the right way in which to approach God. And there is a right way to approach God, and there is a wrong way to approach God. God is approachable, and he wants us to approach him, and there is a right way whereby we must do that. And I think the section in front of us as we continue moving through Luke's gospel really focuses in on that very thing, that Jesus here is addressing this very issue of approaching God. Notice with me again back in verse 9 as the story continues in Luke's gospel. We're told in verse 9 that Jesus spoke this parable. Remember chapter 18 verse 1. He had just spoken another parable. And we were told about that parable. It was a parable that he taught them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Well, now it says again he spoke another parable to this crowd that's assembled. And it seems there's a mixed group there of his disciples who are followers and the Pharisees and religious leaders as well as just those who are part of the mixed multitude in the crowd who are following around the popularity of Jesus's ministry and he spoke this parable to some whom he knew he's God he knows all things who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and therefore they despised others so Luke tells us here In the same way he did in the parable in chapter 18, verse 1, we're told by Luke the specific reason and the specific intention behind Jesus telling this particular story or parable. Again, a parable is just an earthly story that people can connect to and relate to to convey a spiritual or a heavenly truth. And here in chapter 18, we have two parables. We don't have to wonder or question or try and interpret or figure out what they meant. We're told here by the Holy Spirit through Luke's writing the exact reason and intention Jesus taught these two parables. And here we see this parable was particularly to deal with the danger and the problem of a self-righteous and a critical spirit. A self-righteous and a critical spirit. First of all, the intention of this parable we see was to deal with the great danger of a self-righteousness before God. Notice in chapter uh, 18, verse 9, it tells us that this was because Jesus knew that there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That is, there were those in the crowd that day that simply believed they were right with God or they were acceptable in and of themselves to approach God simply because of their own religious works and their own personal spiritual efforts and performance. They believed that what they did, as well as what they did not do, was the very thing that earned them acceptance to be able to have the right to approach God. They were trusting, listen, they were trusting in their own human performance of their religious works and activities as the very thing that made them acceptable in their standing before God. And can I say, please hear me, that is indeed one of the most greatest deceptions and one of the most eternally dangerous perspectives a human soul can have. One of the most eternally dangerous and deceptive perspectives we can have is whereby we would trust in our own performance 
of what we bring to the table, what we perform, what we supply through religious labors or efforts or works or rituals, thinking that that is something that we can put confidence that makes us right with God or we can approach God or be acceptable before him. Believing in those things, a righteousness that is based off of what we produce ourselves through our own religious efforts. I think Jesus shares these things because Jesus knows better than anyone that hell will be filled with many religious people. Let me say that again. Jesus knows better than anyone that hell will be filled not just with what we often perceive, oh, those you know, drug dealers and, and these reprobates in society and, the, you know, and these you know, mass murderers and prostitutes. No, Jesus knows that hell will be filled with many sincere religious people. People who lived by strict standards, who followed rules, who observed rituals, and who trusted in themselves that they were righteous enough and sincerely, deceptively, naively believed, maybe because of even what things they were taught and the ways they were raised, that their strict observances of these things and their religious rituals and their religious activity is what is acceptable before a holy God to make them right with him. And yet, that is one of the greatest deceptions that threatens the eternal destiny of so many people. Again, the Bible that we study tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one, on the entire planet. It says that we all sin, Romans 3.23, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We miss the standard. The standard's perfection, holiness, absolute purity, and none of us can achieve that. You know, we could all go down to the you know, sure line and, and, and courageously say, hey, you know what, L let's swim all the way across the Atlantic to the other side. And some, we may all jump in in a group and some of us, quite honestly, would probably make it about past the breakers and you'd get a, you know, a, camp, a cramp in your calf and you'd fall right over and die right there. Others of us were a little better shape, we're going to make it 50 yards or 100 yards or a half mile out. Other people may make it halfway across the ocean. Maybe if you're one of these Iron Men fanatically, you know, in great shape athletes, maybe you can make it almost all the way the other side and you can see the shore in the distance and then all of a sudden finally that cheeseburger catches up with you and you get a cramp and blah 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 and a and, and hundred yards from the shore you, you die and, and you don't make it now we all made it different distances but what's the one thing we all share we all missed the mark nobody met the standard we all gave our best effort some people did better than others but it doesn't matter because the one thing is true, nobody hit the mark. Same with the standards of perfection, of holiness for a holy, righteous God. The Bible teaches very clearly and declares to us that our own righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. That our best efforts to present ourselves righteous, our best efforts to live right for God still fall incredibly short because of how holy and how righteous God is. We need to realize our own unrighteousness and our natural sinfulness and realize that what we need is not to make ourselves right with God, but what we need is for God to make us right with him 
by supplying the righteousness of God that comes through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose again. That God must make us righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. We're not righteous. We need the righteousness God supplies. So Jesus is addressing this danger of those who trusted in themselves they are righteous. And he's also addressing as well the problem of a critical spirit towards other people. And these two always go hand in hand. When a self-righteous spirit develops in a person, a spiritually self-righteous spirit, that always contributes to a very critical spirit at the exact same time happening as a result. Because if a person believes they are actually supplying by their own efforts what is necessary to be right with God, they will naturally become proud. They'll naturally become proud of their spiritual achievements in the same way in any realm of life when somebody thinks they're pretty good at what they do, a lot of times there's a struggle with being arrogant and conceited and kind of proud and looking down your nose because you've achieved to this level so you kind of look down on those who aren't at the same level. It's a common tendency and the same happens spiritually. When a person believes by their own efforts they've supplied through the things that they do or don't do spiritually a righteousness that makes them acceptable before a holy God, the natural inclination is to begin to feel good about themselves and how holy and righteous they really are, especially in comparison to others who aren't, who don't do what they do or, or maybe don't refrain from the things that they do. And they begin to have within them a critical spirit. It generates a criticalness where they think they're superior and they begin to look down at their nose in a sense towards others and despise and think judgmentally. That's why verse 9 says Jesus spoke this parable that we read because there were those who did this. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and therefore they despised others. And here's the story. Verse 10, Jesus says two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. So Jesus' story opens with two individuals who outwardly are extreme polar opposites. From outward appearance and what was known about them, they were total opposites, and they're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They're both going up to the temple to approach God, to seek God. It says one's a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. We've talked about the Pharisees before. The Pharisees were basically a, a, a strict sect, a rather small sect among Judaism, about four to 6,000 at their peak, of Jews who committed themselves to live separated lives to the extreme. In fact, the word Pharisee means that very thing, separated or separatist. And they lived strictly lives that were dedicated to the not only the Mosaic Law, but on top of that, all the oral and written religious traditions that existed among Judaism in that day. And they diligently observed codes and rituals and strict rules, and they were perceived in the culture as extremely religious. They were perceived as those who were righteous individuals. They had a reputation for being deeply spiritual. That's what they reflected to the society. They were the ones that you would look upon and say, hey, that what represents a righteous religious lifestyle because they lived outwardly very strict lives separated from the culture. Now, on the other hand, we're told the other one that day that went up to the temple was a tax collector. Now, a tax collector couldn't be further from the opposite to the end all the way on the far extreme the other way. 
tax collectors in that culture lived and were perceived as being extremely irreligious, totally unrighteous. They were despised in the culture. They had a horrible reputation and were hated by most of the Jews in that day. Tax collectors, as we've talked about before, they worked for the Roman occupation. And they made their living by collecting taxes from the Romans. And once they met the quota that they needed to meet to turn into Rome, anything they could gouge out of the people through blatant lying and deceptive means by getting additional money beyond just the quota they had to collect, that was how they made their living. So it was a very lucrative opportunity if you were good at being selfish and greedy and learning how to lie and work the people and abuse the authority of your position. So the Jews hated tax collectors. They were perceived as the lowlifes in the society because they were, quite honestly, they were blatant liars. They were thieves and crooks. And they lived lucrative lifestyles off the benefit of others and they were greedy and they were despised and hated. So you want to talk about a radical contrast Jesus is setting here, a Pharisee and a tax collector. This is a radical contrast, these two going up. If we were to think of it in a modern analogy in our mind, this would be like Jesus saying, two men went up to church to pray. One, the most faithful deacon in the church, and the other, the local drug dealer who sells kids on the corner. Uh, Two individuals went up to the church to pray. One was the pastor, and the other was a crooked politician, or the other was the local prostitute that everybody knew. This is the picture that Jesus is conveying to their mind as these two individuals with contrasting reputations and lifestyles go up that day to pray at the temple. And verse 11 says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. So Jesus first portrays the individual who was trusting in himself that he was righteous and therefore despising others with a critical spirit as a result. Notice our Pharisee here, he confidently stands in a prominent position, no doubt, in the temple so that everyone can see him and admire him. And Jesus says, interesting, the language, it says, verse 11, that he stood and prayed with himself. Now, we just talked about this last week as we covered a section on prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is just talking to God. In the simplest three terms, it's talking to God. It's not reciting some spiritual statements. It's not, you know, taking off of our memory, you know, some routine that we've learned of religious phrases. Prayer is very simply just directly and sincerely and honestly just talking to God, asking God questions, telling God your thoughts, expressing your feelings to God, asking God for help. It's just sincere, heartfelt communication with God in an honest way. Interesting that Jesus tells us here in this story as he's sharing it that this Pharisee stands up prominently before everyone else, this respected religious and righteous outwardly man. And it says that he, look at the language, says he prayed with himself. Now my question to that is what does that mean? It doesn't say he prayed within himself. That's not what the language says when you look at it in the original either. It doesn't say that he's praying a silent prayer within himself. It literally says he prayed with 
himself. What does that mean? Perhaps, I don't know, maybe Jesus is indicating that though he said a prayer, he was not sincerely praying at all. That though he said a prayer, he really wasn't praying. In other words, maybe Jesus is indicating that he really wasn't seeking to talk to God directly, at least foremost, but perhaps he was just kind of saying a prayer out loud in such a way, hoping that he might appear oppressive to those who were listening around him and maybe praying as well. Now, I know that we never do this, right? Well, we never say prayers out loud in such a way, not only that we're hoping that we sound impressive and spiritual, but sometimes I've been a part of a prayer group where I almost sense that the person who's praying out loud is almost using it as a momentary pulpit to convey or to say things like they're preaching a sermon to other people. Prayer is about talking to God and just sincerely expressing our heart to God. I think sometimes... It's almost a, a, a pseudo-false humility when people say, well, I don't pray out loud because I, you know, I, I, just, I don't know how to do it and I'm embarrassed about the way that I would sound. Why would you care about the way that you sound? It's not about how you sound. See, in the same way, some people, they, they pray so they sound impressive. I think some people don't pray out loud because it's just a reverse humility. You know, well, I'll be embarrassed about how I sound. Well, my kids aren't embarrassed about how they talk to me. They just talk to me. Why do we care what we sound? We're talking to God. As long as God doesn't care what we sound like, that's going to be our only concern. We're talking to God when we pray. This Pharisee stands and prays out loud. Whatever the case, his prayer, clearly when we look at it, Jesus gives it to us, reveals some unhealthy things within his heart. And Jesus said, remember, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And as we look at his prayer, Jesus gives it to us, you can pretty clearly see that he's, he's kind of arrogant, and he really seems to be a little self-confident. And the basis for his spirituality is strictly on the things that he does and the things that he does not do. Let's look at his prayer together as Jesus gives it to us. First of all, it's clearly his prayer. He's proudly boasting about the things that he does not do. What he refrains from and doesn't. He says in verse 11, God, I thank you. Look how he starts it. I thank you that I'm not like other men. He starts his prayer, God, I really thank you that, that I'm not like all these other people out there. Thank you that I don't do the things that all those people out there do. And then he begins to ramble off a list. He's, God, I'm th I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. In other words, God, I don't, I don't steal, he's saying. I don't take advantage of people. Thank you that I'm not unjust. In other words, I don't, I don't break the law and I don't mistreat people. He says, I'm certainly not like these adulterers out there. I'm not living in sexual sin or cheating on my wife. And then he goes so far even as to say in verse 11, or even as this tax collector over there, maybe lifts up his eyes and he sees the tax. Oh, I'm, I'm certainly not like that guy. I mean, if there is anybody, I'm, that guy is the low life of society. And I'm certainly not like that. And what he's doing is presenting, as I said, what he does not do. He's not like this, and he doesn't do those things, and he refrains from this and refrains from that. And he's presenting himself to God based on what he doesn't do. And then he turns right around, and he presents himself to God based on the things that he does do. He says in verse 12, I fast twice a week. Now, that demonstrates that this guy was a seriously dedicated man. He was quite honestly, it seems, pretty self-sacrificing. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament 
Leviticus 16 and other places says that God commanded and required that the children of Israel only fast one time a year. So God only required them to fast once a year by requirement. This guy voluntarily says that he fasted two times a week. And we know historically that many of the devout Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday. He also says, not only do I fast twice a week, but something else I do, which he thinks makes him righteous, I give tithes of all that I possess. Now that indicates the guy was also pretty generous. He was pretty giving. There were certain possessions that the law said that the people of Israel were to give a tithe from as an act of worship and to help support the temple ministry there. But this guy, it says, meticulously tithe notice, that is, he gave a tenth of everything. He says, I give a tithe of everything I possess. Jesus said of the Pharisees on another occasion that they would literally count every single seed. They're cumin seeds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me and one for God. That this guy meticulously strained out even the very seeds. But let's be honest, one thing you can say about this Pharisee, he was a very charitable man. Giving a tenth of everything you possess, I mean, that is pretty charitable. That's very generous. He was a very giving individual. Now, we know from other accounts that many of the Pharisees' religious works were done for the wrong motivations. Jesus said oftentimes they just did the things they did to be seen of men. But nonetheless, outwardly, he lived a pretty moral life. He was quite a self-sacrificing man. He was dedicated and he was very charitable. He had quite a bit to look up to. Now, no, Jesus says the person who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, what is he doing if you take note? He's comparing himself to other people to validate for his own feelings his superiority. That's what he's doing in verse 11. God Thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust stars, and thank you that I'm not like especially this tax collector. He's comparing himself to other people to make himself feel superior inwardly. What else he's doing that's drastically wrong is he's using other people as his standard for measuring righteousness. His standard for measuring righteousness is based off of what other people, other human beings around him are doing. He's saying, God, thank you that I'm not like all the really wicked people in the world. Thank you that I'm definitely a step or a few steps above all the really evil, sinful, wicked people. And he's using that as a standard of righteousness to make him feel good about himself and probably to drown out the Spirit of God's conviction in his own conscience of his own personal guilt as a sinner just like every other person on the planet. And look, before we move on, let me just say this. There is a little bit of Pharisee in each and every one of our lives. And we need to guard against that. Many a times we can think that it's okay to present ourselves to God based on what things we're doing or not doing. And we almost approach God with this sense of confidence because of what things we do. Well, I, I, mean, I do this and this and, and I don't do that. And, I, and, I, and we have our list of do's and don'ts that we generate in the way that we try and live out. our. And we almost think that it earns us a basis to approach God. And sometimes we can be guilty, just like this Pharisee, of comparing ourselves to other people. Using people as our standard for righteousness. 
to make ourselves feel better about ourselves or to sometimes like this guy. You know, we, we look down upon other people in a way where so we can feel superior about ourselves. That's not healthy. That's not God's design or intention. And we can get critical of those around us as we think we're superior just because we do and don't do these things and these people do these certain things or, or they don't refrain from the things that we do. We need to guard against this. Well, look as Jesus goes on in the story. He now turns to the tax collector and he says the tax collector standing afar off, the exact opposite, he would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus now turns and presents the contrast of the unrighteous and the rather irreligious man from everyone's perception. And notice Jesus demonstrates in the shocking contrast the difference, but he also, by so doing, is conveying a lesson that this man, he says, had the attitude of heart in approaching God that actually was the one that was received by God because of the attitude and the condition of his heart. Jesus says in verse 14 that it was this man, because of his attitude within and his humble faith, it was this man, he says, that went home justified. This man went home right with God, Jesus says. And what do you see in the tax collector? You see that he humbly recognizes his own unworthiness. He humbly recognizes his own sinfulness and his inability to approach God in his own condition. The tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, is not concerned, it doesn't seem whatsoever, about seeking after the admiration of other people. He's not concerned about the approval of men. Why? Because he is too concerned about just wanting to be accepted before God above all else. His number one concern is, is God's approval and God's acceptance. So he, it says, stands at a distance. And the indication, he's not in a prominent, he stands at a distance. It indicates that he understands that his sin separates him from a holy God. So his very body posture conveys that. He stands at a distance because he realizes my sin separates me from God because God is holy and God is righteous. And as an imperfect man with all my failures, I am not. I am not holy and I am not righteous. And therefore, how dare I rush into the presence of God? He, he knew that he had no right whatsoever to approach God in his own sinful condition because of who he was and who God was. So he seems very reverent in the presence of God. There's a sense of respect towards God's holiness and he stands further back away from where the presence of God dwelt in the temple area, he had a real sense of unworthiness. Notice it says in the text that he bent over and would not so much as raise his eyes. He wouldn't even look up towards heaven. Again, his body posture conveys how no doubt he has clearly, in a sense, been humbled before God. It says that he wouldn't even lift his eyes up and instead, as he prays, it says he beat on his breast. That is, he's banging on his chest, indicating what? he's clearly broken. He's broken. He's broken over his own sinful condition before God and he's filled with remorse and regret 
over his personal condition and the status of his inward man. Again, unlike the Pharisee, this guy is not proud at all of who he was. Unlike the Pharisee, this guy was not proud at all at what he had become. In fact, I'm convinced he was probably sick of who he was. He probably loathed who he was and what he had become more than anyone else and he was disgusted with the way that he lived and he was sincerely grieved in the condition of his own inward soul and he was mourning because of his sinfulness in the presence of God. And perhaps this morning you can relate to this tax collector maybe in the way that you feel within today. Maybe quite honestly you find yourself feeling like I'm disgusted with who I am morally. I just, I am so disappointed and saddened over my own condition within. I wish that I wasn't what I was within. And maybe your own sense of unworthiness has become very real to you and you're disgusted with who you are in your own condition with your failures and where you're at in your inward man. Can I say something? If that is genuinely true of your condition, that's really not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 38, I will declare my iniquity and I will be in anguish over my sin. I think one of the greatest tragedies is so often people are apathetic regarding their own sin rather than being in anguish and and really being grieved over their own sin and their failures. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the idea of the poor in spirit, it's not poor monetarily. The idea is poor spiritually. Those who realize the poverty of their own spiritual condition. God, I am bankrupt. I'm a mess. Inwardly, God, I know who I am and God, I have nothing in my bank account that is worth anything. God, I'm a wretch. And I know who I am, God, and though no one else does, I know, and, and Jesus says when someone is heartbroken and in poverty of their own spiritual condition, Jesus says that's who the kingdom of God belongs to. Those who understand their condition before a holy God. David, when he failed and found himself caught in his sin with Bathsheba, declared this in Psalm 51:17: The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. He says, these, O God, you will, not, you will not despise. What's God looking for? A broken spirit, a heart of contrition and sadness over our own sinfulness. And let me say this this morning. The first step toward getting right with God is recognizing how wrong you have been. The first step toward getting right with God is coming to a place where you truly recognize how wrong you've actually been, how sinful we really are. And coming to that understanding, many people sadly never come into a personal awareness of their own sinfulness. Like Peter, who when he was in the presence of Jesus, fell down and said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Tragically, many people in their numbness in their conscience and this is one of my greatest fears for young people who grew up in Christian homes is they never come to a true sense of their own sinfulness and wretchedness before God people just kind of blindly I'm not too bad 
I mean, in comparison to everybody else, I, I am pretty good. True. But in the sight of a holy God, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And we need the Spirit of God to bring us to a place where we say, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. Because it's when we consciously recognize our own depravity and our sinfulness, now we're on the track to getting right with God. Because now we come to a place like this man out of his humble unworthiness in a broken condition, we utter the seven-word prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice this guy's prayer. It is seven words, his prayer, but it's the attitude of his heart and what he asks that makes him become right with God and brings him to a place of right standing before God. Jesus portrays a sinner's prayer that's necessary to receive salvation when approaching God. This man comes knowing his own sinfulness, that he's not acceptable, and he humbly asks God to do for him what he can't do for himself. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I have nothing to offer you. I am sick and tired of who I am. I bring nothing to the table but failures. I'm a guilty sinner, and I know that. I have nothing to stand before you with. I failed, and I deserve punishment for who I am and what I've done, and I realize that. This man knew that. He knew that he was wrong, and he knew he deserved the punishment for the way that he was and who he was before God. So he does the one thing he can in a simple, sincere prayer. He says, God, would you be merciful to me? Forgive me. Don't give me what I deserve. And Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you, it's that man, not the Pharisee, that man who went to his house justified rather than the other. They both approached, but Jesus says he's the one that went home justified. His prayer and the condition of his heart is the thing that saves him. He represents a man who was right in the sight of God and ready for the kingdom of God. Jesus says he went home justified. Now the word justified means to be declared righteous before God. In Romans 1 through 5, Paul develops the doctrine of the righteousness of God by faith. That whereby when we come to God as a sinner and we look in faith to the finished work of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died on our behalf, it's in doing such that God gives us a righteousness that's not our own. And that we need God to make us righteous. That's what it means to be justified. Where God declares us righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says whoever exalts himself with a proud attitude. Here I bring something to the table. Jesus said those are the ones who will be cast down and rejected or humbled. And whoever humbles himself is the one that will be exalted. Again Jesus said I didn't come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. Jesus is saying, I did not come to call people who think that they're righteous. That's not who I came for. Because he says, people who think they're righteous are missing the point. I came to call sinners. People who know their failures, who know they're not right with God. He says, that's who I came to call to repentance. Because people who understand they're sinners before God realize, God, I need change in my life. I need you to forgive me. I need you to change me. And Jesus says, that's who I came for. Those are the ones who understand they need my forgiveness and they need my help to change in their lives. Well, no doubt Jesus wanting to further illustrate uses now a circumstance that happens in verse 15 to 17 as another spiritual analogy. It says they were bringing to Jesus infants that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, 
they rebuked them, or the idea is tried to stop them. Now, it was a common practice in Israel in that day for Jewish people to bring their infants to a rabbi, to have a rabbi lay hands on them and pray a blessing over their life, much like the baby dedication that we did this morning, just asking for God's hand and blessing upon a child's life. And as this is happening, they're bringing infants to Jesus in that day. And as they're doing that, hoping that he'll lay hands on them and pray a blessing over them, the disciples interrupt and it says they began to rebuke them and to stop what was going on from happening. Now, this could be for multiple reasons. We know in that day, in that culture at least, especially children didn't have a very high status in society. And maybe the disciples were thinking Jesus is just so busy with all of his ministry affairs, and he was very busy in the course of his public ministry, and they're just thinking, listen, he is too busy with other ministry affairs, and we have schedules to keep or whatever, and in good intentions, they're thinking, we don't want him to be overburdened. They're kind of trying to protect him as their boss and trying to help manage what is going on. Maybe they feel infants and children are not quite as important as some of the other things that Jesus was doing. So for whatever intentions, they try and stop what's happening and they try and hinder and rebuke them from bringing infants and children, small children to Jesus. And can I say sometimes as disciples of Jesus, we can be guilty of doing the exact same thing. We can be guilty of putting a low priority on the importance of children and the value of ministering to them and that Jesus does want to minister to them. Amazing how many times people can be very excited about seeing adults. Oh, there's more adults. Or we can be so excited about serving adults. But on the opposite side of that, we can very quickly disregard and brush aside and overlook children. And we disregard the value of important things like a mom who stays home and ministers to children and lets Jesus bless the children through her presence and loving ministry. Or we disregard the value of people like teachers in our society who invest in children. And instead of paying them the most, we pay them the least when they're the ones investing in the next generation. And we can do the exact same type of things. Jesus, beautifully, verse 16, it says, instead called them to him. He said, hey, cut that out. You come here. And he, and he calls the children to him, draws them over, and he says, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such, he says, is the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus loves children. And Jesus here wanted them to be able to have access to him. He didn't want people doing things to hold back the children from having access to him or approaching him or stand in the way. He says, let them come. Not only permit them, he says, I want you to help them. Bring them over. Bring them over here, he says. And he says, for of such is the kingdom of God. Some translations say, Jesus said, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In other words, he's saying in a special way, the kingdom of God, it's intended for these little children. It's available to these little children. Notice how Jesus shows that children were extremely important to him. He puts a very high value on children. And he demonstrates that by his action here. Again, this is God in flesh. So it shows you the heart of God, the value system of God. He puts a very high value on children and he didn't want things to stand in the way of him being able to bless the lives of children, to touch and impact the lives of children. It is a serious thing when we as human beings can be guilty, I think, of forbidding a child's 
desire to want to come to God. Or when we can do things on occasion to hinder a child's spiritual relationship with the Lord. Little children are excellent candidates for understanding spiritual truths and grasping the gospel. Their hearts are so open and tender and believing. They're not jaded by all the pollution of the world that's infiltrated their minds or set in their ways and years of life hardening their hearts. And I think Jesus shows us here the tremendous importance as well of children's ministry of ministering to children, of making sure that we give quality effort to connect with children right where they are and to let them be where they are and to meet them right at that stage of life and to help them come to Jesus early in life. As parents, let us remember that Jesus says, listen, let the little children come to me. It's part of our role, our responsibility, that right where our kids are at, we begin teaching and developing and helping them learn how to come to Jesus right where they're at. And as a church that we realize the value of children's ministry and that we implement that by putting a priority of of, of age-appropriate children's ministry classes where kids, when they come to the house of God, right where they're at, can come to Jesus where they're at, at four, at seven, at ten, and they can come to Jesus right where they're at in the understanding they have and they can grab hold of spiritual truths. And that we put an effort and a priority to assist and facilitate that without allowing children to be hindered from coming to Jesus because we diminish the importance of meeting them right where they're at and making the Word of God understandable and digestible. You know, to me, it's it's a tragedy, I think, on occasion when we force children to do things like sit through meetings that typically are more kind of geared and designed for adults where the Bible's taught in an adult maybe level of understanding and and we force them to sit in the sanctuary where everything maybe is too hard for them to attain or grasp. It's kind of going over their head and they're unattentive. And then what happens? They, they, They get bored and they despise church. And they hate church. And it's a miserable experience for them. Listen, I want kids to have an incredible experience when they come to the house of God. I know I wanted my kids to grow up loving going to the house of the Lord, where they had a good experience and they understood and they connected. And if that takes people putting focused effort to pray and prepare a message that's at their level, not a, a, a 45, 50-minute Bible study that they're just not ready for, but you know, a shorter message in a simpler way with a craft and some things that they can enjoy and connect to and it's at their level, awesome. I think that's the heart of Jesus. Let them come to me. I think this is what children's ministry does. It lets children come to Jesus. It allows them. It's a vital and an important thing. Just as essential to the heart of the Lord as everything else. Jesus says, look, the kingdom belongs to them. And then he says, by connection to that, verse 17, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God, like or as a little child, won't enter it. Jesus says, look, children, and if you're a parent, you know this, they have a lot to teach adults about spiritual things. They have a lot, we think we need to teach them. They have a lot to teach us. I've learned more theology from my kids than I have any time I've spent studying in other ways. Learn more about God and his nature and salvation. He's not saying we must become childish, but that we must become childlike to enter the kingdom. What are children like? They're humble, aren't they? They're teachable. Children have no problem receiving. Oh, I don't deserve it. I can't. No, dad, I can't. I can't. 
they have no problem receiving freely whether they deserve it or they can act like a brat and five minutes later say can I have ten bucks doesn't bother them right they have no problem receiving they're humble and kids don't care what other people think and Jesus says that's why if a person doesn't become like a little child they'll never enter the kingdom we have to become childlike we have to be willing to humble ourselves, cast aside our pride and our arrogancy and, and our struggle with receiving freely though we don't deserve anything. We have to become like a little child, Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of God. There is a right way to approach the Lord. Jesus clearly demonstrates that. And let us take what the Lord says and be responsive wherever he has us this morning. Shall we stand? We'll have our worship team come and close us in a final song. Father, thank you for your word and for what it says to our hearts and lives. Thank you for how it speaks to us, Lord, and meets us where we're at. And Lord, we pray that this morning we could be responsive to the things that you've said to us. Communicate to our hearts, Lord. And let us be responsive to what it is that you have said and are saying. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, before we sing a final song, I just want to encourage you. If you're here this morning and you don't know where you stand with God, and maybe for the first time you're saying, you know, hey, I, that makes sense now. I get it. And I don't know if I'm right with God. And I don't know if I'm ready to go to heaven if I were to die today or Jesus would come back. And, and you're ready. And you realize that you're a sinner and you're ready to repent. That means turn away from your sin and to turn around and to turn your life over to Jesus. And you want to be forgiven. You want your guilt gone. You want your sins forgiven. And you want to know that you're going to go to heaven. You got to be willing to come like a little child. That means putting aside your pride and receiving what Jesus is offering you. And if you need Jesus and you want him to save you this morning afterwards, when we're done, I want to encourage you. Come up front. There are folks, myself, others, who would love to answer your questions or pray with you today to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you've got to be willing to humble yourself and come. Let's worship a final song.